Let me tell you a story about a man who lived about 2,000 years ago. He had a bunch of followers that believed that he had been given to benefit mankind, to be a savior for them and all of their descendants, that he would end all wars and arrange all things, that his appearance had exceeded all of their expectations, giving nobody a chance at surpassing the things that he had done. They said that his birth heralded the beginning of the good news. And some of the names that were given to him were Son of God, Savior of the world, Worshipped Son of the Worshipped God. Now, no prizes for guessing who I'm talking about. You've probably got it pretty quickly. Of course, it's none other than the great and magnificent Caesar Augustus. Hmm. Well, that's right. These things were actually written about him. And arguably, he was one of the most powerful and successful men to ever walk the planet. Victorious in battle, unrivaled in his time in fame, power, and wealth. It was his statue that frequented the streets of powerhouse cities, and it was his face, and it was his name that was minted on each coin. He claimed that his father sat at the right hand of the most powerful of all gods, Zeus, and that he had been given authority and rule over all the earth. He oversaw a period of peace that had not been enjoyed for a long time. In the twilight years of his life, he erected a pillar to himself of 35 boasts. And number two said this, I drove the men who slaughtered my father into exile with a legal order, punishing their crime. And do you know what that punishment involved? Well, at his command, anybody who had rebelled against his father was put on a death list. They were hunted down, and thousands of people died in gruesome ways. So, here we are, 2,000 years later, and has anybody bought Caesar Augustus' claim to be the son of God? No, of course not. We don't gather here this Christmas to celebrate Caesar Augustus. Nobody calls upon the name of Caesar Augustus to be saved. You see, humanity has called his bluff. He's been measured and found wanting. Despite his impressive lists of achievements, his claim to be the son of God failed. Does your heart burst forth with joy to sing, come, let us adore him, about Caesar Augustus? No? So what drew you here today? What's all this fuss about at Christmas? And what person in history surpassed Caesar Augustus that you would come here to acknowledge him? Who was he? Who is he? If you have a Bible with you, please turn to the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. You can find this passage printed on your bulletin on page 18. It's Philippians 2, 
verses 5 through 8. I'm going to be reading from the end of verse 5, starting Christ Jesus. It reads, Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We heard it read earlier that the Gospel of Luke tells us that in the days of Caesar Augustus, Jesus was born. And in this passage, the Apostle Paul is giving us a, a shocking insight into what actually happened when Jesus was born. And at a deeper level still, into the very heart of who God is. You see, Paul was telling us that when Jesus was born, bursting into the world to the groans and moans of childbirth, not to the fragrance of the royal courts, but to the stench of animal in a stable, something still spectacularly beautiful was happening. You see, Jesus, being God the Son, was with the Father God the Father, for all eternity past, in fellowship with him and the Spirit. Think of creation. Jesus was there with the Father, speaking galaxies into existence. And it was through Jesus that at a word, the entire cosmos was made with breathtaking power. The privileges and the prerogatives that the eternal Son of Heaven had was simply mind-boggling. And what's more, he enjoyed a completely satisfying, loving relationship with God the Father and God the Spirit. A glorious triunity that was perfectly giving, honoring, and exalting to itself. One person described it as the dance of God. So when Jesus arrived on earth, it was the most surprising and wondrous work of the triune God. Look back at verse 7. The text says that God the Son was arriving in human form, having emptied himself of his heavenly prestige and position. He was laying aside the position and place that was rightly his and adding to himself the limitations of humanity. He chose to veil his power and his glory to become the God-man, both fully God and fully man. And in doing so, he knowingly embraced a hateful world, a world of ill-treatment and malice. He would know hardship and isolation. He would even be tempted for the first time. And he would ultimately hand himself over to death on a Roman instrument of cruelty, the cross. And so, don't we just learn something profoundly beautiful about the heart of God in this? That the Lord Jesus himself didn't think that it was beneath him to come down. 
And not only did he vacate this position of highest honor, but he came down as a servant. He didn't grasp his glory and come as an established king, but a poor servant to humanity. But why? Why do it this way? It's just who he is. And coming as a servant, he was showing us a part of his character. Servant-hearted, humble, kind, tender-hearted. And you know what? He can't be anything else. It's just what his heart is made of. So like the guys selling cheap coffee watches down at the souk, Caesar was selling a knockoff divinity. It wasn't genuine. It wasn't real. Whereas Christ, he came to mankind to show the true heart of God. And how did he do that? Well, he walked amongst us. And he showed a compassionate heart to the social outcasts. He didn't think the leper was to be avoided. And he didn't think the the morally bankrupt tax collectors were beneath him. He didn't think that he was too busy for the children. In fact, he actually sought them out. He said to those social outcasts, I'm going to be seen with you. He said to the leper, I'm going to touch you. He said to those tax collectors, I'm going to have dinner with you. He said to those children, I'm going to embrace you. Give us a hug. And he said to humanity, I'm here for you. Imagine this. The God who had everything, who needed nothing, came to humanity to serve. And if you notice this, that in 2,000 years, nobody has called his bluff. He's never bounced a check of righteousness. No scandal has ever arisen that could dethrone him. The best that the world has tried to do is just to deny that he died and rose again. But no one has dared question the beauty of his character. And you know why? Because they can't. There's no Achilles heel in the God-man. And why is all of this something that's worth getting excited about at Christmas? Because it's exactly what we needed. You see, the God-man came to speak to the depths of our soul and to say, come, be healed, be made new. And I know that at Christmas, the world gets really excited about a jolly old man in a furry red suit with a rather large belly that shakes like a bowl full of jelly. But can Santa save you? No, he can't. Because our greatest need is not for new toys made by elves. No, our greatest need is not a promotion or a new car. The greatest need of humanity is forgiveness. And you see, that you and I, we're much more like Augustus Caesar than we like to think. Because we suffer from the same disease, 
of pride, of self-exaltation, selfishness. We're riddled with sin, and we have all rebelled against the only one who is right and pure and good in every way, and in whom there is no darkness at all, but only light. You see, we are rebels against God. We're glory thieves. We're traitors. We're corrupted to the core, and we needed God to come down and to rescue us from ourselves. And if you're sitting here thinking, hey, I'm a good person. I don't need rescuing from anyone, thank you. Well, let me tell you, it's sin that says a harsh word to your wife. It's sin that holds a grudge. It's sin that grumbles and is impatient. It's sin that enjoys the scandal and gossip of someone else. It's sin that embellishes the truth. Sin that boasts in your job title, your, your salary, your neighborhood that you live in, your possessions. It's sin that says, I'm in a rush, get out of the way on the road. It's sin that ignores the poor and the oppressed in this country. It's sin that just loves money. Kids. It's a, it's a sin that throws a tantrum when you don't get your way. Teenagers. It's sin that causes you to build your identity around your appearance. Or to dishonor your parents. It's sin that ultimately says, I'm the king of me. I'm on the throne, not God. And do you know what the punishment for sin is? It's the death penalty. And let me explain it this way. If you were caught deliberately scratching my bicycle, what kind of penalty would you expect to receive? Verbal warning from the police? Yeah, maybe at most. Let's ramp it up just a little bit. And let's say, if you, were if you were caught deliberately scratching my Ford Focus, what kind of penalty would you expect to receive? Yeah, maybe some community service. Let's, let's ramp it up. What if you were caught scratching a Lamborghini or a Ferrari? Well, let's just say that if you can't fix the repairs, then I think you're going to be doing some jail time. Let's ratchet up one more time. If, if you are caught deliberately scratching Sheikh Mohammed's Mercedes-Benz G-Class, number plate number one, what sort of penalty do you think you'd expect to pay? Well, I suggest that you go and buy some really long books to read in jail for a really long time. And the point is this, that we all know that the greater the object of our offense the greater the penalty that we have to pay. And it's no different with God, except that he is immeasurably perfect. And he is infinitely holy. And therefore, any offense against God, and all sin is offense against God, deserves eternal death. You see, we're the rebels that deserve to be put on the, on the death list. And this is soberingly bad news, isn't it? 
So, what are we to do? Well, the last thing we need is another Caesar Augustus. And we certainly don't need another me. And we certainly don't need another you. No, we need someone infinitely better. A saviour who is infinitely greater. If we, like Caesar, were to erect a pillar of boasts about our lives that somehow might make us a saviour, what would it say? We captain of the football team. Became a CEO of a Fortune 500 company. Ran the marathon in three hours. Married the beauty of the land. Let no man forget the wonders of my classical car collection. Maybe something more palatable. Faithful wife. Loving sibling. Caring father. Generous to the poor. Notable contributor to climate change solutions. That would all be nice. But let's get real. None of these achievements address the greatest need of humanity. To be healed of our treacherous, rebellious natures. And to be given new hearts. To be forgiven. And brought into the family of God. And you know, only Jesus does that. Only the God-man. And only he could do it. Because he was perfectly God. And perfectly man. Only he could withstand the wrath of God that we deserved because he is God. But here's the great news. He actually did it. Look back at verse 8. He put his kingly crown and robes of majesty aside and he took the form of a servant and he added to himself human likeness and stood as our representative in our place He went obediently and willingly to the cross. Rather than avenging his father and hunting down the sinner, he put himself on the death list in our place so that the wrath of God would be averted from us and poured out on him for our sin. And he received a frighteningly fierce penalty so that God and sinners would be reconciled. So the good news of Christmas is this, that he came in the likeness of you and me. And we celebrate it because it was him that came, and not another Caesar, and not another me, and not another you. Jesus did not use his equality with God to take advantage of his power. Instead, he gave generously of himself. He used it to dwell among us and to show us who he is. We celebrate all the more because it didn't end with him walking on earth. He died and he rose again. And it's him that sits at the right hand of the Father, the one true God in heaven. So he's not a tyrannical taker. He's a generous giver. And that's why 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 says this, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that you, by his poverty, might become rich. This means that he took off his heavenly crown and exchanged it for a crown of thorns. And that heavenly crown he now places on the head of those that trust him. And those 
royal robes of majesty that he lay aside in exchange for naked flesh hung, a, hung upon the cross. He now clothes those that love him like a bride on their wedding day. And so it's for this reason that with all of our energy and with all of our joy, the Christian with praise on their tongue says, rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, God is with us. It's why joy leaps from our hearts and we sing, come, let us adore him. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Caesar Augustus brought peace to earth for a few decades. But the God-man Jesus, he offers an everlasting peace to your soul. It's a peace that freely pardons you before the throne of grace. And a peace that with outstretched arms welcomes you into the loving embrace of God the Father. And that's why we call him the Prince of Peace. If this is a peace that you do not yet know, perhaps you've been vainly searching for all of your life in the things of this world or the people of this world, then I beg you, don't look any further than Jesus. You see, the best gift that you can receive this Christmas is adoption. Adoption into the family of the God that made you who went through the horror of the cross for you, turn to Jesus. Ask him to be the king of your life. Ask him to make you more like him and less like you. Ask him to forgive you of the darkness in your heart and your opposition to him. And you know the Lord, he will not reject that request. He stands ready to get to work on your heart. And he delights over you. We're running out of time, but we would love to talk to you more about this. So please find me after the service, the Christian friend that bought you, or any other Christian here tonight. And we would have no higher honor than to share the good news with you. So at, this, at the first Christmas, we saw one facet of God's character. Beautiful. Gentle, lowly, humility. And it's not just a Christmas that we gather together to sing of this good news, to worship him. We meet here every week. We meet here on Friday mornings at 10.30 and we'd love to see you. You'd be most welcome. So consider yourself invited. And think of this. One day, we will see another facet of Christ's character when he comes back for those that love him and when he comes again it will be with a victorious command as he gathers all those that love him to him and the gaze of the world will be fixed on him and at the name of Jesus every knee will bow every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord so how will you respond to him? Let us go before this beautiful King of Kings in thankful prayer.
Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we stand in awe at what you did for us that first Christmas. We marvel at the lengths you went to save sinners like us. And Lord, we pray that we would respond to that love you poured out on us in Christ Jesus by giving our lives to follow and honor you. And as we go now from this place, keep us from ignoring the life-giving riches to be found in the God-man Jesus. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.